Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. I'm glad and excited to be here with you this morning as we start on one of the most famous parables of Jesus, the prodigal son. And this parable or story from Jesus could in fact be the clearest description of the gospel in the Bible uh, for us. And the story, if you've never heard it before, we're going to work through it, but the story is, is pretty simple. A father has two sons. One is clearly a sinner. He goes and lives a wild partying type of life. And then we, until it breaks him as that type of lifestyle does. And then the second son lives this righteous life doing all the good and right things. Uh, He's doing everything he's supposed to do. But what we find is he is actually just as lost as his brother And what's absolutely imperative out of this whole thing, as we work through this for the next couple of weeks, we have to find ourselves in this story. And so that's what I want to challenge you with today. I want you to find yourself in the story. Are you the older brother or are you the younger brother? Because we're all one of them. Now, here's the background to this. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 15. We're going to jump on in this morning. We've got a lot to talk about. It's Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Um, here's what's going on. Jesus has shown up on the scene, right? He came to this earth. He was born for Mary. He grew up. He started his ministry. And one of the things that constantly happens is that Jesus is misunderstood by all the religious people. They were awaiting a Messiah, this military type of leader to come and conquer Rome, lead them to be this nation, this people of God they were always supposed to be. And one of the chief problems they had with Jesus is he didn't act like he was supposed to. They said, this is what it looks like to be a good Jew. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to behave. But Jesus constantly welcomed the outcasts. He, the ones the religious people said, nope, they're not good enough. Jesus welcomed them. He hung out with the sinners, the most disreputable people in society. Jesus went to them and hung out with them. And this was a problem for the religious and the righteous because they are living holy lives. And how dare us or how dare anyone hang out with those type of people? Some of you said, well, I grew up, the the church I grew up in was exactly like that, right? This is a problem with religious people. We forget about the other people. But so right at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus calls Levi a tax collector, and we've seen this before. It says later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. So he has this party in honor of Jesus. We need to have more parties in honor of Jesus, right? Says many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with him. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat with such, what's that word? Scum. Who says scum? I don't know, but these guys did. Why do you hang out with scum? 
And Jesus explained to them, he said, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Yeah, you've heard the story. The sick need a doctor. So I've come to them. I've come to call. And so he talks through it with them. And and they just never grasp that the good news is actually good news. That the gospel is actually good news, not depressing news, not you got to live a miserable life, not that you have to just like push away people, but it's this good news that Jesus has come to do something. And so they never let up on this in Luke chapter 15. So this is 10 more chapters, a couple more years. It says, the tax collectors and the other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So the disreputable people of society, the notorious sinners, they leaned into Jesus They wanted to hear from Jesus. So evidently, Jesus was saying things that attracted people that were nothing like him. These weren't the holy, the righteous, which Jesus was perfect, but he still spoke in a way that the people who were all messed up was like, man, I want to go listen to Jesus. Let's go hear what he has to say. It says, this made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people even eating with them, exclamation mark. Like he's even eating with them. He's breaking bread with them. Like he's hanging out with these messed up people. And so Jesus launches, he uses this as a teaching opportunity, which he often does, to to launch into the heart of the gospel. It says, folks, here's what this looks like. You're really missing it. And so he tells them about the parable of the lost sheep, right? He explains how a shepherd had a hundred sheep. He lost one and he leaves the 99 and chases after the one. And he says this, he says in the same way, these are more, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Which smacks all of you who've been in church your entire life and never done anything wrong. This smacks you right in the face, doesn't it? Saying there's more partying for that messed up person than there is for me. And I've done everything right my entire life. It's like, yeah, I haven't haven't thrown a party for you. I'm throwing a party for the, the one who's all messed up. To which the religious people go, that's not fair. He's not done yet. So he continues. He Um, Yeah, then he tells them the parable of the woman who has 10 coins, and she loses one. And what do you do if you have 10 coins, you lose one? Each coin's worth about a day wage, so whatever you make a day, she lost that. She tore the whole house up looking for the one. Although she had nine other perfectly good ones, she tore the house up looking for her one coin and then celebrates because what was lost is now found. And Jesus says in the same way, There is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So now angels are celebrating. God is throwing parties like there's this great thing when the unrighteous, when the sinners, when the broken come back to God. When they're lost but then found. And so he works through this and to to make his point even clearer, now he's going to Give them the parable we're going to look at today. It's Luke chapter 15, verse 11. He launches into a third parable that explains this even further and even deeper. It says this, to illustrate his point even further, I added even, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a story. A man has two sons. And so we're going to pause here because many of you, especially if you grew up in church, You've probably heard this parable before. You probably know what happens. But we need to pause and realize there are three characters in this story. 
All of them are main characters. The, the father is what comes to be the actual main point of the story. But we get caught up in just one of them in particular. But the story is not just about, and this is important, it's not just about the wayward son who runs away. It's just as much about the righteous son who stays home and hangs out with the father. But both of these sons, we're just going to give you an upfront understanding of where we're going. Both of these sons are the representation of, of two types of people, two types of living in this world. You have the, the wayward son, the free-thinking, independent type who lives according to his own standard and his own ways. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to figure out life, and it's going to be fun, exciting, and amazing. He tries to find happiness and pleasure through indulging in pleasures and his senses. Some of you still live like that, don't you? I was going to say used to, but you still do. You just don't on Sunday mornings, right? He's just indulging, self-indulging, creating his own rules. Well, the other son is trying to find meaning and satisfaction in life by following the rules. So how many of you are rule followers here? So then the rest of your wayward, I don't know which one you want to identify with. I'm just letting you know that that's where we're at. So you got to pick one because you're one of them. Tim Keller says this. He says, Jesus uses the younger and elder brothers. So that's what you have to understand. You're a younger and elder brother. We have to work through this. Jesus uses the younger and the elder brothers to portray the two basic ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment. The way of moral conformity and the way of self-discovery. Each acts as a lens coloring how you see all of life or as a paradigm shaping your understanding of everything. Each is a way of finding personal significance and worth, of, a, of addressing ills of the world and determining right from wrong. So in general, we see this all around us. We see people trying to navigate by uh, moral conformity, meaning I'm a rule follower, I'm going to do what's right, and I'm going to be good. How many of you are rule followers? Let's be honest. Not many. Good. I'm glad we're talking about this then today. And then we have those of you who live for self-discovery. We just want to have fun. Now, all of us are one of these. By nature, we are rule followers or rule breakers. You'll never guess which one I am, by the way, ever. You'll never figure that one out. For instance, some of us, though, but, but the truth is we all might navigate both of these at some point in our lives, right? For some of us, we might start off at this right, righteous, pride-filled, rule-follower life, but secretly we got some other things going on that we don't want people to know about that we kind of express, and we, need to, we know following the rules doesn't work, we know it doesn't fulfill us, so we try to find satisfaction in some other ways. And then we have others who live a wayward life, and we're like, hey, this doesn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out. Like, I actually got to have a job to pay bills. Like, I wasn't aware of any of this. Like, you can't just live life to the fullest. You actually have to work, and you actually have to follow some rules if you want to make anything of yourself in this, this world. So we may start off as the wayward, and then we can commonly overcorrect, overcorrect and become very self-righteous and prideful. Y'all ever seen that in somebody? Those are some of the meanest people you've ever met before in your life. I'm dead serious. Where they were wayward, then they overcorrect. And now they're just, now I'm a rule follower. I want to get this right. I've actually done this, not in the area of religion, because I've never come to the place where I've actually thought I have arrived. I'll let you know when I do. 
Um, but I grew up heavy my entire life, always struggling, always struggling with weight. I just grew up larger than most kids. And I finally got into shape uh, when I was in my early 20s, got in shape, and I ended up joining the military, got in shape before I joined the military. And then I just hung out with people who um, had to be healthy for a living. We had to run for a living, and that's just what we did. And so that's all I hung out with. We were deployed. I was just around people who exercised, and this is how we lived life. And then I came home from deployment, and I'll never forget when I got to Georgia, it was a connecting flight. I, I came back to America, I hadn't been here in a while, and I just got extremely judgmental because I hadn't been around overweight people for a long time. I'm just being honest. I, this, this was me. I came back and I went, whoa. I went, how? Huh. I was like, well, they just need to get in shape like I am. All right, forgetting everything I grew up with. They just need to do what I do. They just need to eat better like I eat better. That I just can't believe people would be like that. And oh, how do the self-righteous fall, folks? As soon as I got out of the military, somehow all that weight just piled right back on. And it was a humbling experience, just like I needed that to be reminded of how gross we can become when we're self-righteous. I can be gross when we forget that we too have issues. And that's what's going on there. So all of us have to deal with this. We either strive for moral conformity or self-discovery, or we can go back and forth. But generally, all of us think one of these ways are truly the satisfaction, that, that we can find true satisfaction in life. All of us are either the elder brother or the younger brother. Sometimes we've been both, but we're one or the other. And for me, well, I knew that rules never led to righteousness. So I decided, why follow any of them? Just do whatever I want to do. So for me, I identify with the wayward son, the first up. We're going to talk about the elder brother next week, and perhaps you can relate to this gentleman's story. Here we go. So remember, a man, a father, had two sons. It says, the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Many of you have thought that to your parents, but you never actually said it out loud, right? They got, he says it out loud. I want my share of my estate before you die. So his father, can you believe that, agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. So the younger brother goes and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now so I can go away and do my own thing. Since he's the younger brother, he would have received one-third of what his brother received. His brother got double the portion because he's the oldest. And so considering wealth is measured in land and livestock back then, he wants one-third and gets one-third of his dad's land, one-third of his dad's livestock, and then sells it all while his dad's alive. In other words, you have this big piece of land. You're like, I don't want anybody leaving next to me. I have all this stuff. There's no neighborhoods coming near me. And then your son comes along, sells it to the neighborhood developed. D.E. Horton's building a neighborhood right next to you now. That's, that's what's going on. He just sells it, sells all of his stuff, cashes in while the father's still 
alive. And this would, of course, would have back then caused a tremendous amount of shame. The sons are supposed to stay home, carry on the father's trade, do what the father does, and especially take care of the father when he gets older because there aren't nursing home folks. There's not places like that. So the son should be a good son and stay home. But he doesn't. So he is severing his relationship with his father, acting as if his father's dead now, cashes in on the money, and goes off. And the crazy thing about this whole story, folks, is the father lets him do it. He lets him. He says, if this is what you want to do and this is the places you want to go, he lets him do it. Verse 13, a few days later, don't take him long, D. Horton already had the contract signed up, I think. A few days later, the younger brother packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money and wild living. Wasted all his money in his college days. or his college. He wasted all his time. He just went off and partied it away. He squandered all of his inheritance. What took a lifetime for the father to build and develop and hone in on and earn and save. He squandered in just a few short, well, however long, but not very long at all. He just blows it on partying. Living life to the fullest, spending things, spending the money on things that have no value, just blew all his dad's money. What was his money? To make it worse, about that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. So to make matter worse, Jesus says, then nature comes in. The economy crashes all around him. He has nothing to fall back on. He has cut his relationships with his family. He's cut his financial. He has nothing left anymore. And now the economy has taken a turn for the worse. So he's left with nothing, has nothing to fall back on at all. He's blown it all. And then it says, verse 15, he pursued a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. So the man seeks employment just to stay alive and takes a job taking care of unclean animals. So this means as as a Jew, he is working for unclean people, Gentiles, taking care of their unclean animals, pigs. In other words, Jesus describes the lowest imaginable job anyone in their culture could take. Like this is the lowest of lows. He has to go and do that. So his life of sin has led to utter brokenness. It leads to complete breaking of him financially, spiritually, morally. This guy's just bankrupt doing something he could never think he would do. And while he sought independence and freedom in this self-discovery lifetime, in fact, he found it led to bondage and poverty. Folks, isn't that what happens with sin? It leads us to places we never thought it would take us and leads to this brokenness that we were never expecting. So he's relationally poor, financially poor, now having to live a humiliating lifestyle just to survive. Sin has consequences, and he's living in this brokenness now. Verse 16, it says, The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. So he's in such a broken place that the slop you give pigs, he, he just wanted. Like he's like, man, if I could just eat that, like that would be satisfying. And that's where some of you were, and perhaps that's where some of you are now. And perhaps you haven't hit financial bankruptcy like this gentleman did. 
Um, perhaps your parents are still bailing you out or your friends are still bailing you out or whatever that looks like, but you know that your deepest desires from that life actually aren't fulfilled. You feel empty, you feel kind of broke, and you don't know what it is, and you're just longing for something to fix it. You want that freedom um, that you thought this independence away from God and your family would bring you just to find out it doesn't lead to that at all. And now you're longing for something. This man's longing for food. Perhaps you're longing for something else too. But for this young son, his whole life has been about consuming and taking. Just living off his dad, wanting his inheritance, consuming, taking, then blowing it all on a partying lifestyle. And now he has found it's left him completely and utterly empty. And some of us need to lean in here and pause and understand this story and realize that the father, listen, the father doesn't come and bail him out of this. And some of us need to hear this, and I know it's uncomfortable. The father doesn't take him away from that. Some of us do everything in our power to keep our loved one from feeling the weight and the effects of sin. And while I do understand this idea that, well, I could never live with myself if... I could never, like I just couldn't handle if something ever happened to them. We have to understand we cannot allow people to escape the consequences and effects of sin. Folks, they need to sit in it. And some of us are bailing out our family members way too early. We're coming to save the day and we're not saving anything. We're hurting them. Sin has effects, they're built-in consequences, and sometimes people need to find them for themselves. For every sin, there's a pleasure and a payment. And when that payment comes due, you need to sit in that sometimes. I did, and perhaps your family member does. We need to work through that. Every time, if you bail out your child when they commit these things, all you're teaching them is that you're going to save them, and one day you're not going to be here. And then what's going to happen? then they're a grown adult and the consequences are far worse than if they would have figured that out 20, 30 years before. The father lets him sit in this. Doesn't bail him, doesn't fix it. This is where you're going, go. You get to choose that. And folks, God loves us and we know he's the picture of the father. If you didn't know that, you know God is the picture of this father. God loves us. We will never outlove God But we also have to learn that God will allow us to turn from him and experience the brokenness of our sin if we choose to. He doesn't just bail us out. He makes us live and deal with those consequences. And so he's sitting in them. And it says, when he finally came to his senses, folks, what caused him to come to his senses? Poverty, brokenness, longing for food, pain, suffering. Like, folks, God uses those things. When he finally came to his senses because what he smelt, what he saw, wasn't working for him. None of this was good. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. So he realizes, wait, the day laborers, not not the slaves who are like part of the family and live with the family, but the day laborers, the hired help, the ones we just pick up to work for a day, even the day laborers at my father's place have far more food than I have. They're treated better and are living better than I am. He's like, why am I doing this? I mean, even though the hired workers have more than I have. So he devises this plan. Here it goes. He says, verse 18, he says, I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. 
please take me on as a hired servant. That's a day laborer. Just hire me day by day if you need help. I'll have more than I have now. And folks, this is what true repentance looks like. This is a picture for all of us. His brokenness leads to repentance. It's turning away from his self and his own way and his own desires and goes back to the Father once again. And we have to remember in this story, the Father never goes anywhere. Who leaves? Right. When we think of our sin and we think about God, God doesn't go anywhere, folks. Our sin causes us to depart from him and walk away from him. And true repentance is saying, huh, I need to go home and just say, I messed up. I sinned against you, against heaven, and just throw yourself at his mercy. And see, this is what true repentance looks like because he takes, um, excuse me, he takes, he accepts the consequences of his sin. He recognizes that the choices he made aren't anybody else's fault. That he chose this, he's done this, and here's where he's at. And he just goes to throw himself at the mercy of God. And I've been studying for forgiveness for a sermon series coming up sometime in the future. And what I've come to realize is quite often our approach to God and um, asking him for forgiveness and repentance really isn't repentance. And it's really not forgiveness. We don't often go to God and just blanketly say, God, I admit that I completely sinned in this way, and I know there's no excuses. Generally, we go to God and we just want him to accept our excuses, don't we? It's like, well, God, I know I did this, but have you seen how my boss talks to me? I I know my husband, I know my wife did. I know I did that wrong, but God, but, but it really wasn't my fault. Or God, you made me this way. I didn't ask for this. Right? We excuse it rather than just saying, hey, I did it. I own it. I sinned in this way like I just did. No excuses, just completely owning it. Because forgiveness is not found in our excuses. Forgiveness is found in just owning it and going to the Father and throwing ourselves at his mercy. Saying, Father, here's what I did. So the younger son decides to return home, owning up to his failures, throwing himself at the Father. And here's what it says next, verse 21. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so we return home. I'm sorry, go back to verse 20. I messed up. Yeah, it says, so he returned home to his father. We didn't go over this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he devised the plan. I got a little ahead of myself. It happens. Bear with me. Verse 20. It says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. So the picture here, folks, is this father is waiting. The picture is his father sitting on the front porch waiting every day, looking far off, waiting for the son to return. And when he sees his son from a far distance, coming back home, walking towards him, the father bolts to him. And distinguished men, folks, did not run back then. This would have been undignified. He wouldn't have been... 
He didn't just go out running and jogging like we do today. So this is a mark of him just not worrying about what anybody else thinks, not worrying about a care in the world, just running towards his son. And think about the son would have been filled with fear, would have been filled with anxiety, would have been filled with worry. Have, have you ever done that before you went to that big thing that you know you had to do? You start getting a little nervous, head starts getting a little foggy, stress started. He's walking towards the home. He sees, he's like, oh, there's home. He's getting nervous, repeating what he's going to say over and over again. And then the father just runs and throws his hands around his neck and just says, welcome home. You see, with repentance comes Reconciliation. The love of God is greater than anything we have ever done. And folks, this is the God of Christianity. This is the picture of God Jesus gives us. This is our Father that he teaches us to pray for. The Father who readily welcomes those who've turned their back on him, welcomes them with open arms. He says, come home. I've been looking for you. I've been waiting for you. Come home. Verse 21 His son said to him, remember, he's rehearsing it. He's been practicing. He just spits it out. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. No excuses, Dad. I don't have any rights. I don't have any ownership. I can't claim any authority. Like, I have nothing. No excuses, Dad. But the father doesn't let him finish. Doesn't let him explain that he just wants to be a day laborer. His father says, verse 22, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. The finest robe in the house. Who would have owned it? Whose whose robe would that have been? The father's. Father says, go get my best tux. We're dressing them on. No, not the cheap one. No, not that one. The good one. Get him the best one. Only wear for certain occasions. Get him the finest robe and put it on him. Put the formal attire on him. Give him the ring back. Yeah, but he just sold everything and blew it. I was wondering. I know. Give him the ring. We don't give jewelry to people who take everything and then sell it and pawn it. We don't do that. No, give him the ring that has the family seal on it, probably welcoming back into the family, saying you're now a member back. He says to put shoes on his feet. The guy's walking around barefooted. He said, get him the nice Nikes, put them on his feet, welcome him home. If you're picturing a tuxedo with Nikes, that's exactly the description I just gave you that he's wearing right now in the story with a nice ring on his finger. This is a picture of full restoration back into the home. This is a picture of our God fully restoring the son who comes back home. Doesn't even let him finish. Welcome back. I've been waiting on you. But he's not done yet. Verse 23. He says, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. And according to scholars, meat was not a staple of every meal like it generally is for us. It was too expensive. And the fattened calf was only used for special days like the Day of Atonement, which would have taken a long time to prepare. So this is an elaborate party. This is an all-night celebration. Put the good clothes on. They're going to go prepare the meal. The party begins now, even though it's going to go on way into the night. We're just going to celebrate because you have come back. 
And the first two parables tell the same story. The one of the lost sheep and the corn. There's a celebration when sinners, when those who are far from God come back to God. And so the picture of God isn't the scary God out trying to get us, out trying to condemn us, out trying to hurt us. The pictures of a loving father waiting to embrace people back to him. Waiting to throw a party for all of you messed up people like me. And we're going to celebrate. We're going to have fun. We're going to do this together. If. Just repent. Come back. Walk back. And this is nothing but a story of grace. The Father is God lavishing on us what we do not deserve, what we cannot earn. He just freely gives to us and welcomes us back, ready to restore and reverse these fortune, these things that we've called. He's ready to fix all that and say, come home. Tim Keller writes, he says, God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're deliberately a Um, oppressed or even murdered people or how much you've abused yourself. The younger brother knew that his father's house, there was abundant food to spare, but he also discovered that there was great, excuse me, there was grace to spare. There is no evil that the father's love cannot pardon and cover, and there is no sin that's a match for his grace. See, this is the gospel that God welcomes sinners back home, even the most blatant sinners, he welcomes them back into his family. This is an absolute reversal of your standing with God through repentance because of Jesus Christ. God offers a full forgiveness. You're like, he can't forgive everything. A full forgiveness. Yeah, but what about, yeah, full forgiveness. No, he can't forgive. Yeah, full forgiveness taking a third of all of your dad's stuff, blowing it and spending it, a full forgiveness he offers for anyone coming back. Folks, have you truly embraced that you are forgiven through Jesus Christ? Fully forgiven, forgiven. Debt's been paid. You've been reconciled. It's been canceled. That's not on you. It's not you. It's different. It's it's been gone. It's passed. Debt's been paid in full through Jesus Christ. Do you understand that he has already forgiven you before you've done anything? Jesus Christ has already died for your sins. A full pardon already awaits. A grace is already available. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And so we have the good father waiting, saying, look, it's already been paid. I've already covered it. Even the sins in the future, like sins in the future, like you've already forgiven. I've already forgiven them. Like you can't forgive. Yes, I can. It's already been forgiven. You can't earn forgiveness. And that's the hardest thing for us. Like, yeah, but I got it. And you don't have to do anything. He's already forgiven you. It's already available. Just as the father was already waiting and ready to receive the son, your heavenly father is already waiting and ready to receive you. You've just walked away. He said, come home. We're throwing a party. If you don't like meat, we'll have green beans, something else. Like, just come home. What are you doing? Why are you out there? Why are you wasting all that time out there? Why? You can be fully restored and we can have a celebration. Come back. There is no need to be fearful of God. 
The wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus Christ, and the love of God is seen through Jesus Christ. Both have already been taken care of in Jesus, and this is nothing but grace, folks. Full reconciliation is available through Jesus Christ. There's nothing like grace on this earth. You'll never hear of anything else or any other system talk about it this way, but this is the gospel message. He already loves you and is already forgiven. Is just waiting for you. Come back. You can be fully restored through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, Paul explains it this way. He says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Before you did anything that you brag about, he died. Before you did anything good, he died. He already showed you how much he loved you by dying for you on the cross. God's grace is our only hope. His grace is inexhaustible. We can never out his forgiveness and his love for us. So the question is, why run from him? I mean, why? Why not run towards him? Those other things will not satisfy. Only Christ will satisfy those deepest needs, those holes you were feeling in your life. And listen, if you're here today and you're just like, man, my family member's a prodigal. Never forget what your family member or your friend needs is the deep love of Jesus Christ. Never forget what they're truly missing is Jesus. And true restoration and redemption is only found through him. And they have a choice, just like you did, to run from the Father or run towards the Father. God allows us to choose. He allows us to choose a life of sin. And now we're thinking, yeah, but I don't want that for them. Folks, they're going to have to work through that. And all you can do is pray for them. And that's not like, oh, I have nothing else to do. That is the most powerful thing you can do for absolutely anybody. Did you know that? Bailing them out is not going to work like prayer. Getting them counseling is not going to work like prayer. Although they may need counseling. What they need is their relationship restored with their heavenly father through Jesus Christ. Never forget that. Nothing is more important than the gospel. And Christians, as a church, we must never forget that we have been completely forgiven and justified from our sins. And as a church, that means we have to absolutely and 100% be grace-filled people. That means that we are utterly saved by God's grace and we extend God's grace to other people. We must be like, as a church family, because folks, churches aren't known for this, As a church, we must be known to welcoming the broken, welcoming the outcast, welcoming those who aren't good enough, because many of us have been there. We are the not good enoughs, and it's only through Jesus. The rest of you we'll talk about next week. Don't worry, you're not off the hook. We'll talk about you next week. But those of you not good enoughs like me, we understand we've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We extend it to other people, which means we must be ready to get in the business of reconciliation, redemption. We must be in the business of forgiveness and helping people walk through their messed up life. Because that's what God does for us. He comes to us in the middle of these messes. As a church, we don't need to be afraid of those messes. We walk towards it knowing, hey, Jesus has this. I don't. But I'll help. But Jesus got to. Jesus can figure this out. And so as a church, we don't judge or we don't condemn people. Uh, condemn people. We don't pretend we're better than people. We don't pretend we, our story is somehow better than their story. We just offer Jesus' grace because I'm absolutely convinced that grace can change the world because it already has. And as a church, we extend that.
And we become, each one of us, grace-filled. Living in the grace of Jesus Christ and extending it out. And if your story is one of the prodigal, you can find mercy and grace today. Never believe that you're not loved or you can't be forgiven or that you're not good. Never believe any of that. Although some of that may be true, not the whole love part, but you aren't good enough. It's okay, though. Jesus Christ is. You can't be good enough. Jesus Christ has already done that for you. And so we just rest in his grace. We accept his forgiveness. And we choose to follow him with our life. But you see, the story of grace isn't fully accepted by everyone. The story's not over. The brother comes home. And if your brother left, lived a party in life, and you've been the good boy at home, how would you respond when your brother gets the party thrown? We'll find out next week. He responds probably how you just felt. Mm. You're like, mm, I wouldn't be nice. Mm. We'll find out next week. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, first, we just want to pray for all those prodigals that are in our hearts right now. Father, our heart breaks for them. We know they are choosing a life of sin, and we know their choices are creating havoc in their lives and their home life. Father, we ask with all love that you do what you need to do to break them so they will return home. We ask you to give us the wisdom and understanding to trust you in that process. We confess that we quite often feel like we love them more than you do, that we know what's better than you do. We confess our frustration when they walk away. But Father, we realize today that you've never left them, you've never walked away from them, that they walked away from you. Father, we confess and realize that we aren't the Savior of the world, but Jesus is. So we lift up these prodigals to you. We ask you to continue to wooing them home. Father, we thank you for being the God of forgiveness and reconciliation. And those here today who've been running, we pray they accept your call to come home. To run to you, knowing that they will truly experience grace and forgiveness through you. And Father, help us extend mercy to those we need to extend mercy to. Help us see people how you see them. Help our hearts break for them. And give us what we need so we can work for your glory and your honor. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Will you stand?